And having said that, I want to ask you to turn with me uh, to what I believe is a very visionary passage in Scripture, and that's 2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 14 through 18. Peter. If you're looking for it, it comes right after 1 Peter. Let's stand together as we open the Word of God. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, as Peter closes out his second letter. He was writing in a day and time that might not be that much different from what we're living in today. I'm titling, titling this message, Surviving the Cultural Storm Surge. He says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blemish. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things that are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led astray with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. And if you're a, a teenager, you've ever gotten one of those birthday cards from Pastor Ben and myself in the mail, and you saw that I had scribbled Second Peter 3.18 on there, and you've never taken time to look up what that verse says, now you see, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this word of admonishment from your apostle, from your Holy Spirit to our hearts that's relevant today. Lord, I pray you would speak to us through your spirit. Lord, I pray that we'd be open to what you have to say and that we would be transformed and renewed in our vision for what you've called us to do for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. Well, Kent's not here this morning. He was a little sick, so I can talk about him right. I remember when, um, when he was a little fella, and we had gone to spend some time at the beach on vacation, and he had spent all morning building this sandcastle, getting everything just like he wanted it, and his moat around it, and everything else. And... Then the tide began to creep in. And as the tide began to creep in, he got a little nervous, and, and he, he laid down in front of his sandcastle because he was not going to let the sandcastle take his tide away. I never forgot that image. I wish I'd have taken a picture of it that day. I never let that image get out of my mind. I thought, what remarkable faith. What if we all had that? If we believed that we could hold back the tide. There were times when we were living there in, on the coast in North Carolina that I wished we could have held back the tide with all of those hurricanes that came in. And one thing we discovered during that process, you know, the, the, the waves got to rocking and rolling before the storm ever got to the coast. Just the fact that there was a storm out there, just the fact that something was coming got things moving pretty good. As a matter of fact, while everybody else was kind of leaving, the surfers were showing up and they were just getting ready to go and, and have fun with all of the the waves and the storm that was out there stirring things up. And so the tide began to creep up an inch up a little bit higher, but that wasn't the worst. And even the winds 
that came and, and kind of uh, blew things around and, and brought about damage, that was not the worst damage. The worst damage, if you've ever been through a hurricane, you know this, and if you've ever ministered in a disaster area following a hurricane, you know this, the worst damage is caused by the storm surge when the swell of the ocean just sweeps in like a tidal wave and washes everything off its foundation and then goes back out. And that's what was about to happen in the culture that the Christians in the first century church we're experiencing it that day and time, and that's what I believe that we're about to experience now. Yes, we are withstanding the, the winds as they blow. We saw this morning in our life group, in, with, with the college life group in Psalm chapter 1, that, you know, the, the wicked are like the chaff that the wind blows away, but the righteous, they, they withstand the winds of time. And so we've experienced the winds. We've seen the tide of the culture, the anti-Christian, ungodly culture. We've seen the tide creeping in and creeping in and getting higher, but I'm telling you, I believe like it was about to take place in the first century that it's also about to take place today that there is coming a storm surge before the Lord comes back. And our responsibility as a church is the same responsibility the first church had is to make sure that they are on a solid foundation to make sure that they were being the believers they were called to be when this spiritual storm surge comes in and all of the world tries to wash away all that we believe, who's going to be left standing? Who's going to endure the test of times in that day? Again, we're already feeling the winds blow. We're seeing the tide creeping in. And many of us are wondering whatever happened to the foundation of the Christian faith in our nation Peter's writing probably in the early 60s A.D. to believers who had seen the tide of the pagan Roman Empire bring persecution, abominable sin, and ultimately the storm surge would come in and even wipe out the city of Jerusalem. Perhaps Peter remembered a promise that Jesus made when when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, they say you're all kinds of folks. Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? Peter, having received a revelation from the Father, said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus made a statement to Peter concerning that. He says, listen, on the rock of that statement that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So perhaps Peter saw that all hell was coming in on the church, but he knew that Christ was in control, and he was trying to encourage through his, his letters, through his preaching, that the body of Christ would build up a generation of believers who would withstand and survive, and not only survive, but thrive in the midst of a cultural storm surge. And as we look around this world today, we look around our nation, and we see all that we are allowing in the name of tolerance and moral relativism, when we see that even the, the persecution against the church is coming from within, when we are is threatened by terrorists living in our nation as we are those outside of our nation, we realize that there is uh, the tide's getting higher and there is a storm surge that's coming. But I also believe, just like in the first century, in the 21st century, God wants us to raise up a generation of people who will survive and thrive in the midst of the storms of life. Well, what does that look like? As we pray about 2020 vision, it has a lot more to do with buildings and budgets. It has to do with people. That's what God's called us to be about. Glorifying Him and reaching people, drawing them to Him, making disciples 
of all nations, starting with our home, as we looked at last week, our home, our community, and the world, influencing them for the glory of God. So, so what does an individual, what does that kid who grows up in our church under the influence of the homes represented here this morning, what does that Christian look like that's going to stand the test of times? Well, the first thing I want you to see that, that Peter points out is this, this individual will be consecrated for the purposes of the kingdom. He will be consecrated for the purposes of of the kingdom. What do I mean by consecrate? To be set apart, to be holy, to be, be set apart for sacred purposes. He says, therefore, look what Peter says here. He calls them beloved loved ones. He's not just saying that they're loved of God here. Peter is actually speaking of his own love. Some translations that you're looking at this morning say, therefore, dear friends. But what he is saying is, I'm speaking to you as a pastor this morning. I want you to know more than anything that I'm speaking to you because I love you. And, and as I read that, I couldn't escape that because as a pastor, if there's something I want you to know as a congregation, it's that I love you. I love the Trinity Baptist family. I'm not doing what I'm doing for a paycheck. I had a discussion with, with Jeff and Ben this week. I said, you know, there, there, there's extremes. So, some, some pastors are tyrants and others are hirelings, and, and I refuse to be either. I, I just I want to shepherd the flock of God that God's called me to pastor. I, I, I preach the truth of God's Word when it's fun to preach it, and I preach it when it's not fun to preach it because I love you. And God's given me a love for the people here long before I even came here, and, and, and most of you know that. Peter's saying, listen, I want you to know, I want you to withstand the storm surge. I want you to stand everything this culture's going to throw out, out at you because I love you as your pastor, as, as, as a spiritual leader, but also as a friend. And so he appeals on the basis of of love, the ones that I love. He says, looking forward, looking forward to what? To these things, these things. What things are we looking forward to, and and what does that have to do with being consecrated for the purposes of the kingdom? Because the kingdom of God was at hand. Look what he says, and go back to verses 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt away with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? What should your character be like in light of the fact that one day we're going to be part of his eternal kingdom? He says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will be will melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, listen, I didn't need a movie to tell me heaven is real. I had the word of God and the God of the word, which is evidently a lot more accurate than Hollywood these days. He says, we look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And even the the believers who were alive in that day we're not just thriving to experience something in the, the moment, but they were living for an eternal kingdom. That great day that was coming, but he's saying, you, how ought you to live in light of that? You should live as a kingdom citizen with kingdom purposes in the here and now so that you're ready for that day. 
That's what he says we're looking forward to, looking forward to these things. It's the consummation of the ages. It's the coronation of Christ, who when he comes back the second time is not as a suffering servant, but as king of kings and lord of lords. And I'm planning, and I pray that you're planning to be a part of that kingdom. And he says, if you are, begin living now as kingdom citizens right now. If you have no desire to live in this life as a kingdom citizen, you need to check whether or not your salvation is genuine, because that's what we are all about when it comes to spending eternity with him. It's about being a kingdom citizen. Matthew 6, 33, the Sermon on the Mount, it's all about kingdom living. Matthew 6, 33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things that you might be worried about, he'll take care of. He'll take care of the rest. Seek first his kingdom. And don't be so concerned about the worries of this world. That's what the Lord's Prayer was also delivered in the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord's Prayer was all about kingdom living. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to live as kingdom citizens in your power right now. Not just when the role is called up yonder. Let's live as kingdom citizens right now in this world, even though it's not popular. Consecrated, set apart for kingdom purposes. What does that mean? It means be diligent to be found in him in peace. Paul often, when he wrote his letters, would preface the word peace with grace. Because we have grace, we can have peace. Because of the grace of God, we can be at peace with God. And he says here, Peter is telling us, be in right relationship, without spot, blameless. Live a life in this world unspotted by the disaster of this culture. Live as a kingdom citizen on purpose. Going back again to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 16, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And if you're going to have kingdom influence, then you need to keep yourself pure and unspotted from the world. And so the vision that Peter has for the church, the vision that this pastor has for Trinity is that we bring up a generation pure and unspotted from the defilements of this world, living a life on purpose for the kingdom of God. My son was at the FFA convention this past week. They began every session with some taps on the gavel, just like those of you who are in FFA here. Taps on the gavel and a question. Somebody in FFA, tell me what that question is. Future farmers, why are we here? All right, there's got to be some FFA people out here, right? Future farmers, why are we here? And you know what? Those kids know why they're there. But if if we were to ask that of the church, church, why are we here? How many of us can answer the question? We're we're to be consecrated for those purposes, living on purpose, and and we're going to kind of break that down as Peter does with the rest of the text here. What does this mean, though, for the mission and vision of the church? What does it mean for the mission and vision of your home? Because that's where it all starts. Few believers, few next-generation Christians are living a consecrated life. Very few are living a consecrated life. Many are religious, many go to church, many get excited about things that are going on at church, youth trips, and you name it. Very few, very few are living a consecrated life. Peter is pleading with them, live that consecrated life. That's why he wrote this letter. It says that we might be found in him in peace, pure, blameless, consecration. 
begins with the blood of Christ working in our life, bringing us near to him, setting us at peace with him, but walking in that. Most of us believe in the cleansing power of the blood of Christ to bring us near. Few of us rely on the power of the cross to live a victorious life, pure from sin, as practically as we are positionally. See, being a Christian is more than a label. It's a lifestyle. A lifestyle of being consecrated for kingdom purposes. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, the author of Hebrews says, let's lay aside the, every weight, the sin, which so easily entangles us. And I wouldn't have time to name because all of us probably have a different sin that easily entangles us. But lay aside the sin that easily entangles us and, and run the race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our race, or of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He's looking for a consecrated people to use for his glorious purpose, and God's purposes are very glorious. Every once in a while, usually it's on my anniversary, if we've got a babysitter, my wife will take the fine china out of the cabinet. You know what? It's consecrated. It's set apart, out of reach, but it's set apart for special purposes. And she'll cook up one of my favorite meals, or maybe I'll grill some steaks on the grill and, and we'll use that fine china that doesn't get used. I'm sure if, you know, we have uh, some company over for a special occasion that gets pulled out and that sort of thing. But it's set apart. You know, last weekend I made a big mistake. I decided I was going to work on my lawnmowers myself. And, uh, I mean, I was pulling stuff out, trying to look for a place to lay stuff, and, and I was getting all greasy and nasty, and I didn't realize what a mess it was, it was creating. It's a big mistake. But could you imagine... Could you imagine? This didn't happen, by the way. I'm smarter than this. But could you imagine if I had taken my wife's fine china and laid it out, and as I took those lawnmowers apart, I just put the grease and the dirt and the grime and the filth and, and everything that was all over my hands and all over my clothes and all over our driveway, if all of that had been laid on her nice, fine china, we would have been going to marriage counseling. We'd have been in big-time trouble in our relationship. Why? Because it's consecrated, it's valuable, it is set apart. And here's what God has said about you, young lady, young man. God has said, you are valuable, you are consecrated, I've set you apart for service, uh, for, for a purpose, for kingdom purpose. Don't be defiled, be spotless, be pure, be blameless. Don't be defiled by the things of this world. Live your life with kingdom purpose in mind. Don't let the devil use you to store his grime and his garbage. I was speaking at the National Day of Prayer Rally. And it wasn't something I had in my notes, but in the midst, I just felt that the Spirit of God prompted me to say this. But I said, I'm sick and tired of Madison County being referred to every time I read in the Athens paper by somebody making comments. I get sick and tired of Madison County being referred to as Methison County because the devil wants to use families in this county as, as, as a dumping ground for drugs and alcohol and you name it. And as a church, we've got to set the example. What is it that we lay out? Is it sexual sin, prescription drug addictions? All of that's prevalent. Purity. Listen, I, I believe still the biggest battle for the church, Christian people that love the Lord Jesus is going to be sexual purity. When he says keep yourself blameless and without spot, it's in sexual purity that the devil is attacking the next generation. 
and their parents. In many cases, even their grandparents. Our mission is to see a generation consecrated for the purposes of the king. A lot of um, beautiful young ladies here. Children's ministry and, and our youth group. I saw uh, yesterday, I know a lot were posting their prom dresses on Facebook and all that. A lot of beautiful, listen, young lady, I don't care what anybody else says about you. You're beautiful. You're God's creation. But I'm also reminded, Proverbs 11:22 says, Like a golden ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. Like a golden ring, something beautiful, something valuable, something treasured, in a pig's snout where a Jew would never want to go, <laughs> is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. Some of you are like, well, you picking on the girls? What about the guys? The guys are the pig's snout <laughs> in this analogy. Pastor Ben has daughters. (laughs) We're to raise up a generation who wants to be consecrated for his purposes. Can we get a vision for what that looks like? Secondly, I, I believe that God would have us to survive the surge of the storm that's coming by contending for the purity of the gospel of grace. Contending for the purity of the gospel of grace. Consider that Verse 15, the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. In other words, his delay in ushering in the eternal kingdom provides more opportunity for people to come to faith in Christ, for more people to experience salvation. Chapter 3, 9 says that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And he goes on to explain that as also our beloved brother Paul Peter knew that even he had to experience a confrontation of the Apostle Paul on the purity of the gospel. Paul came to Peter in Jerusalem and the Jerusalem Council and, and helped lead in a conversation to say, listen, we cannot corrupt the purity of the gospel of grace, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we need to grasp an understanding of that, and we need to raise up a generation who will preserve the purity and integrity of the Word of God and the gospel of grace that the Bible proclaims. Now, the irony of this conversation is that Peter says this about Paul's presentation of the gospel. As in all his epistles, verse 16, Peter talking about Paul's letters, says, speaking in them of these things in which are some things that are hard to understand. <laughs> you know, as a 21st century believer, I'm like, man, I read Paul, and I'm like, man, that's just, that's straightforward. I get it. The irony is, I, I read Peter here, and he writes about Jesus uh, preaching to the spirits in bondage. Steve, do you understand all that? I mean, you know, people ask me all the time, did Jesus go to hell? Because of what Peter wrote, not because of what Paul wrote. Peter was kind of confusing in there. In the days of Noah, he was preaching in Noah and, and, and bondage and baptism. And what? What are you talking about, Peter? No, it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but I'm thinking, Peter said Paul wrote things that are hard to understand? Why did Peter say that Paul wrote things that were hard to understand? It's because for a religious Jew, it was hard to understand the gospel of grace. That we don't have to do some works to earn our salvation. And there are so many cults and other religions coming in, and we are so tempted. Even one of the universities I have high respect for has demonstrated that they are tempted 
to compromise and allow people come in and, and bring a corrupted gospel. He says, untaught and unstable men take a message like this and, and can pervert it. And in other words, Peter was concerned, as probably we should be concerned today, that if you preach a gospel of grace, you're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And no other way and no amount of good works you can do can amount to more than filthy rags as far as achieving righteousness before God. Then somebody's going to abuse that. Somebody's going to come along and say, well then, if you believe that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, then you're just giving people a license to live any way they want to live. And they begin to pervert and distort that and say, anything goes. Well, <laughs> thank God I'm saved by grace. I'll do what I feel like doing whenever I feel like doing it. And Peter would say, that's something we've got to be careful of. Paul would say, <laughs> Romans chapter 6, 1 and 2, God forbid, how can we that are dead to sin live in it any longer? Paul would explain that God is changing us from the inside out through the gospel of grace, and the same grace that saves us will be the grace by which we live and are sanctified and grow in. And we'll come back to that growing in grace in just a moment. We need a generation who will contend for the gospel of grace. goes on to talk about a, a steadfastness. It says, You therefore, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. The steadfastness, this form of the word is only used here in the Bible, nowhere else. And, and it speaks of a firm position in the mind. It's not talking about losing your salvation. It's talking about having a, a firm comprehension in the mind and then beginning to waver and not really know if you really believe it the same way you once did. It is used twice. The word is used twice as a verb, not in this form. It's used twice as a verb in Romans in the beginning and in the end to refer to being established in the gospel comprehending it with your mind, understanding what it really means. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter says, Set Jesus Christ, or sanctify Christ, as Lord in your hearts, and be ready to give a defense, an apologia. Be, be ready to stand up for the hope that is within you. What was Peter saying? Peter was saying, listen, not only do you need to believe and understand the gospel and protect its purity, you need to be able to contend for that gospel in the public arena. You need to be able to explain the gospel and not waver from that gospel because that gospel will be under attack. We need to bring up a generation that's not going to fade in their thinking when temptation comes their way. We need to bring up a, a generation that's not going to fade in their thinking once their kids are raised. Well, we were active in church. We believed the gospel. But man, we got our kids through high school and college, and they stayed off drug, sex, and rock and roll. And so now that they're kind of out on their own, we're going to quit going to church. We're going to quit contending for the gospel because, after all, it was just a tool to help protect our kids for a time. We don't need it anymore. And we're not going to compromise the gospel when it's politically incorrect. And somebody says, you can't preach that anymore. A generation who says, we're not going to water it down because of persecution. My desire is to see a generation who will come up. We're going to show a video clip here in just a second. Some of the kids saw this in the movie God's Not Dead. 
I could probably, I, I'm the worst movie critic in the world, some of you know that, and I could probably even pick apart some of the, the, the dialogue in, in this conversation. But I at least admire the boldness of the young man in this video. If we can show that video. Where you, whether you agree or, or could follow his argument well or not, you have to admire the potential students have to take a stand to preserve and to contend for the purity of the gospel of grace. My desire is to see a generation. Not many students can reason like this. And by the way, this isn't that deep. It's just a basic argument. But why is it that very few Christians, as they, they graduate from high school and go into college, can defend the purity of the gospel? To be quite honest, it's probably because their parents weren't able to. We need to bring up a generation who can contend for the purity of the gospel of grace. Contending isn't just holding it down and embracing it for yourself. Contending for the gospel is taking it to the world and sharing it with anybody you possibly can. And finally, here's the third aspect of this, this vision for this generation who will withstand the coming storm surge. It's being committed to the process of spiritual growth. We'll look at verse 18 and then we'll close, but are we going to have a generation? Are we going to be a church that's committed to the process of spiritual growth? And so in verse 18, he says, here's what you need to be. Not led astray by the air of the wicked, verse 17, but 18, growing, grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's all about him. To him be the glory both now and forever in the eternal kingdom that we're preparing for. Amen. Growing in grace is a way of life. It includes growing in a cognitive and an intimate knowledge of Jesus. We talked about that last week. To know him is to love him. To love him is to serve him. Can we get a vision for preparing the church to know, love, and serve Jesus? And it's a life of grace. It's not a bunch of religious rules and legalism and do's and don'ts. It's a life of grace. Is a Christian life a narrow road and a straight line? Yes, it is. But it's still a life of grace. I admire these gymnasts who can jump up on a balance beam and do all kinds of things. Could you imagine if somebody said, Robbie, for you to be a part of the kingdom, for you to really account for Christ and account for God, I need you to jump up there and, and, and do your routine on that balance beam. Man, it would be a disaster. I've already got one torn ACL. I'd probably have another one and a few broke bones if I gave it a shot. But if you took the beam and you lowered it to the ground, you'd realize it's actually not as narrow as you thought it was. Uh, just lower it to the ground and allow me to walk on it holding somebody's hand, and I believe I could do it. I believe I could do it. And here's what I believe Jesus is saying. Yes, the Christian life's a narrow road, and the Christian morality is a difficult one to embrace. And that's why Jesus has come to live inside of you. It's why he's come to take you by the hand and say, listen, we're going to walk this road together. Romans 8, 4, the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us when we walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. And so we need to bring up a generation who learns to yield their, themselves, yield their lives to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God and guided by the Spirit and the truth in all that they do. Spiritual growth brings us the confidence through His grace. Then we're willing to attempt things for the glory of God that we would never have attempted before. We're not walking a balanced beam. We're not walking a tightrope, but we're just walking by grace 
taking Jesus by the hand. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes when I understand the the dependence upon grace that we need for the Christian life, I am so glad that God made me naturally an introvert. Now, some of you are thinking, you're a pastor. You speak in front of crowds of people. You are not an introvert. Listen, naturally speaking, God created me as an introvert. Anybody here who went to high school with me would tell you that's the case. And so I'm glad God created that way. I fully rely on His grace. Paul said in Ephesians 3, 8, this grace was given me that I might preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And it was that personality of being an introvert that would keep me from ministry as a teenager until I knew that I was called. I didn't seek after vocational ministry until God had confirmed that calling on me. It kept me from proposing to my wife until I knew that I knew that I knew she was the one. It keeps me from this pulpit until I know that I've got a word from God because I'm scared to death to come up here without him. And it keeps me from getting excited about something unless I know that it's real. And if I seem just a little bit excited about this passage and the possibilities of this church this morning, it's because I know they're real through the promises of God. 2020 vision is leading us to develop a ministry strategy that involves all of this, a a generation consecrated for the purposes of the kingdom, a generation contending for the purity of the gospel of grace, and a generation committed to the process of growth. I look forward to getting into some exciting areas of this and some checks and balances along the way. How do we measure discipleship? How do we know when somebody is a disciple of Christ? We're going to look at Starting with birth, zero to four years old, what does it mean to have consecrated parents? That's, that's what a, a baby dedication is all about, creating that environment, parents being consecrated for those purposes. Ages five through nine, those, those, first, those grade school years, where they get a clear understanding of the gospel and they can tell you who Jesus is, what faith is, what the Bible is. Those tween years, those hard years for some of, some of these kids sitting here this morning. Man, I'm not a kid anymore. I'm not a teenager anymore. I'm, I'm just a tween. But where they're preparing for adolescence, and we're putting the right tools in the parents' hands to help them walk through that process. Those middle school years of 7th and 8th grade where they're learning what purity is all about. High school years, ninth and 10th grade, where we've got a checklist of saying, here are some biblical absolutes we want to know that they've embraced. And then their junior and senior year of high school where they're preparing to be leaders in their world and, and grasping apologetics and how to defend their faith and do the kinds of things we saw in this video. Then college and the rest of life, reinforcing all of these things we've been learning all along. I believe with all my heart, and I'm not that Geico commercial where Pinocchio's nose is growing longer when I say this, I believe there is unbelievable, untapped potential in this place this morning for the glory of God. And I've seen it. And I've seen courage. And I've seen passion. And I believe God's getting ready to bring up a generation that's going to survive and thrive as this cultural storm surge hits. And we might not be popular, but we will be ready for what God has in store. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you for an apostle named Peter who wasn't perfect, didn't have it all together. He made some mistakes along the way, but you used him mightily in the church. And out of the love in his heart, he wrote and admonished 
the church to be ready for a coming cultural storm surge. Lord, we know that we're here today because your hand was upon them and your hand is also upon us. And I believe that there are spiritual champions throughout this congregation who want to be a part of what you have in store. Lord, I just thank you that you allow me to be a small part of it. We pray this in Jesus' name.